The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Katerina Simonetti, Senior Vice President and Private Wealth Advisor at Morgan Stanley, uh, joins us. Katerina, on a day like today, give me an example of one of the incoming phone calls you've received from your clients today? Well, thank you for having me on the show. You know, it certainly has been, you know, a difficult year for investors and, you know, specifically this day. And, you know, the type of phone calls we would receive on the day like today would be focused on the fact that investors are getting uncomfortable um, with the stocks and bonds that they own. And they might understand that the quality of their portfolio is really high and they're really well positioned, but we are all human beings and it's very hard to manage through the fear. And we tell our, our clients all the time, over and over and over again, to focus on the long-term, but you see returns on the day like today and you know what we saw during the previous week, and in combination, it's getting progressively difficult for them to focus on that long term, to have that big picture, you know, in mind. And in our view, the only thing that we can do at the moment is go back to basics, go go back to all the work that was done through the portfolio construction on making sure that the, the portfolio quality is really high, on the income generation quality of the portfolio, on the asset allocation between stocks and bonds, and also internationally, because surprisingly to many, when we look at the returns at the European markets in general, um, you know, they're not you know, quite, quite as bad as what we've seen here in the U.S. making our case for asset allocation. But investors are concerned. It's a scary time. Sorry, I feel like we haven't seen, Katerina, um, true capitulation. And I don't know if that's necessary, but it seems to be something that a lot of people want. Uh, right now, the VIX is at 33, but it's taken so long for it to get there. This sell-off seems fairly orderly. What, what, what do you think we need to see? Well, bottoms are hard to predict to begin with. And uh, the market is uh, getting to the 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 range that we quite frankly have expected you know we thought that uh on the lower side we could see anywhere from uh 3400 to 3800 we're at 3779 uh at the moment and it's not news to anyone that we are in the bear market and you know the uh, the rallies that we have been seeing, they, one of the big things to keep in mind is that, you know, they're bear market rallies, which is totally normal during the bear markets. And we have to um, analyze the the data that is coming in and, you know, see really the, the path out of this bear market, which we quite frankly think is not going to last too long. We think that with all of the earnings revisions to the negative, 
eventually, as we get through the fourth and fourth and uh, third and fourth quarter of earning reports, we're going to get some positive news and maybe you know, get get this catalyst that we need to get. But the third and fourth quarter, quarter, you think we need to get through the second half of the year? That's what we we think. Yes, we think that that we're feels like a long bottoms, time. <laughs> but but at the, but at the same time, you know, here's a little bit of a positive news. As, as difficult as it is to you know focus on it right now, our up range for the year is forty two hundred to forty three hundred, um, because as the uh, inflation you know gets gets somewhat out of control and as consumer confidence improves a little bit and we start seeing the end of this earnings revision cycle and companies get into in position where the earnings are normal we're looking for that general market normalization you know that that is you know difficult to achieve we just have been through this covid environment there is um, a war in um, you know, in Ukraine, that adds the geopolitical risk. But the biggest thing is that consumer confidence is at the all-time low. I mean, we have not seen the numbers at the, quite frankly, at the levels that they are today. And a big part of it is the price of oil and gas, is inflation, is, you know, just, just the day-to-day. Uh, but at the same time, in our view, market cycles are getting hotter but shorter. And we even though the, the, that we totally appreciate the possibility of the recession, think that it's not, you know, 100% deal, that, you know, it might be on the horizon, but it also uh, is not something that is a sure thing. All right. In terms of kind of getting a sense of, are we seeing capitulation? I have an S&P that's off 3.3% this morning. I look at the WEI function on the Bloomberg terminal, and I see that volume so far this morning is 33% above the 30-day average so far today. So that's a little bit of something to pay attention to. Katerina, when, when you talk to clients and they say, ah, boy, I think this is the bottom, I want to buy some stuff here, I want to put some money to work. Are there any sectors today that you feel comfortable with? Well, absolutely. There are all these sectors that would do better than others, you know, in this type of environment. And in our view, the, the data point that we focus on is inflation and that it might be peaking, actually. So so the sectors that do well in this environment are utilities, healthcare, real estate, uh, and consumer staples. And consumer staples is they, you know, is, is a little tricky because there is a price uh, pressure there. You know, but but we think that this is the sector that that, that those uber defensive sectors, you know, that are positioned well in this environment. But you know, speaking about inflation, yep. even though we think that inflation might be declining. Um, we think it's going to be higher than historical level. Right. So we always view portfolios through the prism of income, for sure. All right. Katerina, great, great stuff. As always, we always appreciate getting your perspective. Katerina Simonetti, Senior Vice President, a private wealth advisor at Morgan Stanley, talking to her clients today, holding some hands today, S&P off 3.3%. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com. Let's get to our next guest, Matt, because... I don't know what this guy does. Chris Campbell, he's a chief strategist for Kroll. I know Kroll as 
Like the security people, right? Yes. Okay. But before joining Kroll, he actually had a real job. He was a former assistant secretary from the U.S. Department of Treasury. Chris, what does a assistant secretary for the U.S. Under Department Mnuchin, of Treasury, right? Under Steve Mnuchin. Mnuchin. Under Mnuchin. 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 Yes. Yeah, correct. And, like, yeah. what did you do for like day to day? What as didn't a job? you do? Yes. Uh, it was it was very busy times. Seventeen and eighteen, we uh, you know we had uh, re-regulation of Dodd Frank and and Sarbanes Oxley and uh, tax reform was underway and so many other things, uh, cybersecurity and uh, you know it was a, a great variety of things. There was no question. It was a it was very difficult time. Uh, amazing time, um, but also I, you know, as I like to point out, there was good economic time as well. The country was doing pretty well at that time. So. Well, I was going to say yeah. it wasn't that difficult. How about <laughs> how about being the assistant treasury secretary now? <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I I have a lot of respect for my friends at Treasury, and I and I wish them a lot uh, very very well. <laughs> so well, you also interacted with Fed Chair Jay Powell um, during that time through you know various type uh, types of meetings. What do you expect to hear from our Federal Reserve Chairman? This week, I mean, it is—it's ugly out there as it relates to inflation. Yeah, there's no question. Look, I—you know—I've been saying for a long time that inflation was uh, unfortunately not going to be transitory, and unfortunately, I was right. Um, you know, I, I have great respect for for Chairman Powell. Um, and I mean, you guys basically put him in there, right? We we did. Our, our Yellen was our through February of 2018. Right. So, right. Yeah, yeah, he came in and, and under the Trump administration, uh, you know, and was renominated by President Biden. Um, look, it's and confirmed. You know, it's it's a it's a very difficult job. There's no question about it. Uh, chairman Powell is a consensus uh, chairman. Always has been. I think uh, one thing I always say that's great about him is he's able to talk about the economy in ways that are really approachable and kind of and democratizes the way, uh, you know, otherwise very, very unapproachable topics. But he has uh, an incredibly difficult job, and I believe, unfortunately, he's just moved too slow. Um, so I think that uh, he's now faced with an impossible set of, of, of uh, challenges, and um, he's either going to have to choose to precipitously raise rates or, uh, and drive the economy in the, in the, in the tank, or live with inflation and, and, the, and the really difficult things that are going to happen with that. Now, I, I was just wondering, like, how does a Federal Reserve Board, some smart people there, led by Jay Powell, how do they fall behind the curve? They do their best on economic forecasting. Um, and, you know, again, uh, Chairman Powell's uh, approach to the Fed is he's, a, he's, most, he's really a consensus builder and he's a consensus guy. Uh, he's very even keel. Um, and, uh, you know, that approach would, in almost every other circumstance, would work. Uh, but this, uh, unfortunately, right now, this is a, we're at a time where I think inflation is just, it, you know, it got away from them. They, they forecasted uh, inappropriately, unfortunately. And now there's a real challenge ahead, and they're going to have to find ways of, of either shocking the system by raising rates precipitously um, uh, because there's so much outside of their control, supply chains, um, you know, Russia, um, China, uh, you can kind of go down. Regulation? And, and I mean, I was going to just point out that it's not all about the Fed. I know that... Um, there was there were a few days a couple weeks ago when the administration wanted us to believe that the Fed was solely responsible for inflation or deflation, <laughs> like passing the buck. But obviously, there are other things. If you spend five trillion dollars in a year, if you um, you know try and regulate oil companies out of existence, then you're going to have some um, some 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 feedback from that, right? 
All I can tell is you're a very smart guy. <laughs> no, there's uh, like there's no question. I mean, I, 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 you know, from my vantage point, Congress pat and passed and spent way too much money. Um, you know, there was some of that that was really necessary. The, the government came in and shut down the economy, so there was it was a real challenge there for a while. But the, we Congress cer certainly overspent, um, and yeah, and both on the fiscal and monetary side, and the quantitative easing, and it continued for so long. And so there, you know, I, I, on both sides of the of the equation are to blame here. Um, and now we're in significant debt. What, what, one thing that's not talked about is that, you know, the, again, the, the impossible uh, challenge of, of raising interest rates is also going to make the fiscal side almost impossible because now uh, most of us are the taxpayer dollars that, that they're going to be collected are going to be spent on servicing our na nation's debt. Right. And it doesn't seem like people talk about a uh, fiscal solution or a policy solution to this. We only talk about what can the Fed do. And I appreciate that's fun for mm -hmm. us. Yep. So we talk about the Fed all day long. Um, but there, the the difficulty is in Washington as well, right? They can't come in and just cut taxes and, um, uh, well, they can't do anything stimulative, right? Um, otherwise, that risks boosting inflation even further. Yeah, look, I mean, they're, they're gonna. I I I know I know my friends in Washington. I've worked with them <laughs> for a long time. They're gonna want to spend more money. There's no question. And as the economy continues to, to degrade, um, they're gonna want to you know provide assistance to families. And so there's gonna be a great pressure on them to spend more money. You know, but fast forward to November, likely there's going to be a divided government. Um, and really, in, in, in those situations, if there is a willingness, um, you know, the president being Democratic, perhaps the Congress being Republican at that time, there could be a, a bigger solution that we, we, could be, we could be seeing. But until then, I see nothing happening in Washington. D.C. is really broken. Oh, boy. Yeah, I guess. Uh, Chris, how about a recession? Is that something that you're talking to your clients about as a real risk? Yeah, uh, and, I do. and if so, when, maybe? So I think it's going to happen sooner rather than later. Okay. Um, you know, even, the, again, as I was talking about before, the Fed has an impossible set of choices ahead of them. But one of the choices they have and likely the choice they're going to take is a, is a precipitous increase in, in uh, interest rates. That is for sure going to lead to a recession. And you know, as I like to say, um, there's about half of our country who live paycheck to paycheck. And so if we go into recessionary times and if we can't get inflation under control, we're in stagflation. That means that the majority of our, our, our fellow Americans are not going to be able to afford food and gas and, and clothing. That's going to be a real challenge. It's going to you know, put socioeconomic pressure, uh, economic pressure, and everything else uh, uh, absent what the markets are going through. So what do you expect from the Fed on Wednesday and the next few meetings? I think they're going to have to start shocking. Um, I, and it's, it's uncharacteristic of Chairman Powell in this Fed. But I just I can't see him doing it, right? Yeah, you can't think, see him coming out and surprising markets. So now as we ratchet up expectations for 75, he's going to have to do 100. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, like, I, he's, he, I think he's going to have to go beyond 50, um, do something. I don't think he's, you know, the, the Chairman Powell is not Paul Vol Volcker. He's, I mean, it's not going to follow that path. But I think he has to do some things that are, that are going to be uncharacteristic of him and what the markets don't expect in order to do something that's going to get inflation under control. All right, Chris, good stuff, man. Good stuff. You're coming back, by, by the way. Uh, we just kind of did a little vote. You're going to come back. You're a pretty good guest. <laughs> Chris Campbell, Chief Strategist for Kroll. We like to talk about education, too. MBA from the Thunderbird School of Global Management. I love that. Uh, and then a bachelor's from the University of California at Santa Barbara. I think students should pay the state of California to go to Santa Barbara. That's how beautiful they do. Santa Barbara is. They do. I mean, I mean it's just, you have to pay. I know, but they should pay more because they're literally on the beach in one of the most beautiful spots in the country. Uh, good stuff there. Let's switch gears a little bit, talk geopolitics, and there's absolutely no one better to do that with than Jack Devine. He's a founding partner and president 
of the Arkin Group. Awesome. We're talking a 32-year veteran of the CIA, former acting CIA director of operations and headed CIA's uh, Afghan task force from 85 to 87. Uh, remember, kids, that was when the Soviets were there. Jack, you know, you're also the author of a book that I read last year, Spy Master's Prism, The Fight Against Russian Aggression. Good stuff. I highly recommend it. I cannot really fathom how much President Putin has miscalculated seemingly in Ukraine. What do you make of the whole situation here over the last four months? Well, I don't think you're the only one surprised. I, I mean, I'm sure he is. Uh, and his intelligence is faulty. I mean, there's no question about it. But the key question was whether or not the Ukrainians would fight. And I think he grossly underestimated that because of the relatively little resistance he uh, uh, faced in 2014 uh, when he went into the Crimea and, uh, and the uh, Donbass. So I think he thought he had a cakewalk, and I think he's surprised by his own army. I think he thought he had a stronger army. He's invested in high-end weaponry, but didn't look at the basic blocking and tackling of logistics and those things that made Ulysses S. Grant win the Civil War. All right, so he's made some mistakes, but how is this likely to play out? How, Jack, do you expect this to end? Well, I think everybody thought, you know, let's get uh, Zelensky on a plane before it's too late. And this is in the first couple of weeks. But it quickly became clear, that's what we were talking about a second ago, that the army and its uh, structure was weak. So uh, the Russians basically got put, pushed back. Now I think you're at a point where the Russians are using heavier artillery and so on, and they're making slow but steady progress. But it is slow and bloody. And I also think there's a catch-up here. I think as the artillery has arrived for the, uh, for the Ukrainians, they're going to be uh, pushing back again. So you're going to see more counter-pushing. And, and somewhere not too far out, I would say before, before the end of the year, if not by Thanksgiving, you're going to find somewhat of a stalemate where they can make some gains and then they're pushed back. Ukrainians make gains and they get pushed back. We haven't reached that point, and there, but it will arrive. And at that, because the Russians cannot win over the, and occupy the all, all of Ukraine, and Ukrainians unfortunately won't be able to reoccupy all of the territory without significant cost. So I, I think we're probably looking very soon at a stalemate where everyone is going to feel that this is going to be a about as far as it goes, there will may not be a negotiated settlement. Both sides may just lower the firing level and it will go on like it has for, since 2014. But we're looking now, I think, at closely where where the standoff will be. All right. Well, that's it's obviously a tragedy in so many ways, but love to get your your take on that. Jack, let me also ask you what you think about what we're seeing in this country and the market fallout from that inflation at 8.6%, the highest since the early 80s. The market's uh, really tanking for the third day in a row. You're speaking, I believe you're speaking at the S3 Air Conference at the New York Stock Exchange. It's a company on whose board you serve and has become uh, really noted in the financial industry for its short data. What are you talking about there? Well, we ought to get the, the experts uh, that are at the summer to, to address it. Um, I'm more of a military political uh, analyst. But I would say, uh, frankly, if we're looking in the context of Ukraine, it's, it's there, there's a cost here. Uh, we're paying that cost. But so are the, so are the Russians. But there are overarching 
issues in the economy that I think many many experts on your show understand. You know, where are we going to go with the interest rates? And I think being able to monitor various um, uh, uh, variables, rather, as, as, uh, as the uh, S3 group does, uh, it'll enable analysts to have a better handle on the speed in which variations are taking place. If you want a gut reaction, I, my own gut reaction is that if inflation is going to be with us a while, right? And interest uh, increased interest rates are coming down down the road, and uh, it's 20, 2023 sure. is going to be a difficult year, not only for the United States, not only for Russia, Ukraine, but probably probably worldwide, including the Chinese. Hey, Jack, you just mentioned the Chinese. I wonder what they're the Chinese. What do you think China is taking away from what's happening in in Ukraine as it relates to Taiwan? Right. So we're here, we're seeing a lot of static and and uh, chest beating uh, and from China right now about they they'll, they'll go to the last man to to preserve uh, their country as if we were going to attack. Uh, my sense is they've looked carefully, very carefully, at what is happening to the Russians, and I think they're asking themselves, we don't want to make the mistake Putin made that looking at Taiwan, attacking an island. By the way, I will tell you, is a much more difficult thing than the land war, but. And looking at the cost that the, the Russia is now paying and the cost that they would pay, and it would throw off their economic game immensely. My honest opinion is that I think when they looked at it, whatever date they had in their mind, a lot of people talked about 2027. But my my view is it's pushed off to an indefinite period. Mm. I think they need they're more concerned about solidifying their economic power in the region, yep. uh, but a war would totally disrupt their economy totally disrupt their place in the world. So I think yep. that's it's further off. And a lot can happen between 2022 and 2027 right. when many of the military in China think yep. they need to have uh, Taiwan part of it. So right. I think they've, they've seen this and this is, is actually helpful yep. in not having a confrontation with them. All right, Jack. Awesome stuff. As always, Jack Devine, founding partner and president of the Arkin Group. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. are obviously obsessed with what's going on in markets today and uh, that's not just what's happening in stocks and bonds crypto has become an increasingly important part of financial markets nick carter joins us right now who um kicked it off and nick correct me if i'm i'm wrong here uh as one of the first analysts on the street following crypto before he founded his um, venture crypto venture company Castle Island, and also founded Coinmetrics. Um, what is going on? Uh, it's not just Bitcoin that's failing as an inflation hedge. I note that uh, gold also hasn't performed terribly well, but the the, the drops that we've seen in crypto um, uh, far outperform or underperform anything else. Why? Well. Um Ten, thanks for having me on. Yeah, the crypto market's going through its own little deleveraging cycle here. Um, there are a bunch of lenders that are blowing up, and uh, in fact, some of their positions are visible 
their liquidation thresholds are visible on the blockchain. And so uh, there's an element of stop hunting that's also going on in the market right now. Uh, with um, So that would probably explain some of the reflexivity. But yes, we are having our own little deleveraging cycle, uh, obviously not helped by the fact that financial conditions are getting very, very tight. Overall. So it was already tough before Terra, USD, and Luna, that um, catastrophic collapse. Is that starting to um, to spread? Is there any contagion effect from that? Because now we see that Celsius is also uh, barred um, money being taken out and moved around. Yeah, entirely, yes. There's a daisy chain of risk here, and uh, that's precisely correct. It's traces from Terra, which was um, at its peak, the largest sort of DeFi lending protocol, uh, the anchor protocol within Terra that was really the reason it blew up, uh, was, was, the, was the largest um, lender in the DeFi space. And a bunch of uh, sort of centralized lenders that take retail deposits and offer a yield on that, they were putting client funds in it. And uh, Celsius, which is this big crypto lender, which has now paused withdrawals, uh, they were uh, probably the biggest uh, user of the anchor protocol of Terra. And so now that Terra fails, Celsius suffered a ton of withdrawals. Uh, they're clearly distressed. We're not sure if it's a liquidity or a solvency crisis. And then the next daisy chain would be uh, other lenders that have exposure or relationships with Celsius um, and then other lenders that uh, also suffer outflows due to the confidence crisis. So there's, you're precisely right. There's a daisy chain of risk here, and we're seeing it play out really, really quickly. Hey, Nick, I know, as, as Matt mentioned, uh, you were at Fidelity as the first crypto analyst there. I'd love to get your perspective about, as you look at the sell-off here vis-a-vis -vis other assets of, of crypto, what percentage, from your perspective, do you feel like is institutional ownership of crypto across the board versus retail today? How institutionalized has it become? It, well, it's, it depends what uh, kind of institution you refer to. Uh, obviously, we have a very small amount of sovereign ownership. Um, we have some corporates uh, that own Bitcoin. That's probably the largest sort of uh, institutional tranche there. And then, of course, you do have asset management products created by the likes of Fidelity. Uh, overall, I'd say the crypto market is still very retail-driven. Um, and, um, you know, if it were more institutionalized, I'd expect to see the volatility attenuate, and I would expect to see uh, softer peaks and uh, less aggressive bottoms um, through rebalancing. We're not really seeing that. Uh, to me, it's still very retail-driven. Remember, it's a small asset class. As of right now, it's Collectively, all the crypto assets are worth less than a trillion dollars. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't really have the liquidity profile to absorb, uh, you know, the largest institutions. But, I mean, since 2017, I've certainly seen a lot more appetite for it. Uh, I just haven't seen a ton of institutional adoption in size. Well, that could change now, obviously, given the crypto winter has gone um, has turned into like a polar vortex. I want to ask about something maybe a little more esoteric for many of our listeners, um, but people in crypto have been waiting for the merge to happen at Ethereum, which would change um, the verification system from proof of work to proof of stake. Uh, there have been a couple of hurdles lately. Um, there are concerns that a lot of the staking is, well, it's too um, concentrated. And the, the difficulty bomb that had been planned to help move this along has been delayed. What do you think about proof of stake in the merge? 
Yeah, that's well, prior to sort of everything falling apart in crypto markets, that was the biggest catalyst that people were looking for and which it was expected in the fall of this year. And for Ethereum, it's a big part of the story because they had determined that they were going to make this transition from day one. It just took them five or six years to get there. Um, and it's a key part of uh, the Ethereum uh, you know, PR positioning, let's say, in terms of moving away from the energy-intensive uh, proof-of-work and moving to proof-of-stake model. There's definitely some snags there because um, I would say proof-of-stake is just less uh, battle-tested in the wild. Right. Um, and yeah, it does raise centralization risks, um, either through these large staking pools that have these economies of scale, so you get concentrated liquidity, or through uh, custodians that uh, amass lots of the coins, and then they do the staking. Yep. So, you know, there's concerns there. But, All, right. Um, all right, Nick, that's great stuff. We appreciate it. We'll check back in with you later on all things crypto. Nick Carter, founding partner, Castle Island Ventures. He went to the University of St. Andrews and the University of Edinburgh, so it begs the question, how many times did he play the old course at St. Andrews? We'll get that next time we talk to him. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.